splendid blessed day and a warm welcome to the Grey Light Cafe brought to you by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus is a communications consultancy focused on engineering, infrastructure, and sustainability. With you today is Inji Musa, political scientist and teaching associate at the University of Cambridge. And I'm very pleased as always to be accompanied by Mr. Anthony Haynes, creative director of Frontinus. Greetings, Mr. Anthony. Greetings, Inji. In another interesting episode, we have dealt with the subject of productivity by focusing on the role of space and place. Complementing that spatial aspect of productivity, we like to dedicate today's episode to the temporal aspects of productivity. Yet before engaging with this hot topic, I'm actually interested in your thoughts, Dr. Anthony, on the subject of productivity more generally. So how do you perceive productivity? And more importantly, why is it that crucial topic to discuss on our on our podcast? Well, I guess everyone thinks productivity is a good thing. You know, if you ask people, do you want to improve your productivity? They don't send, tend to say, no, I'd like to reduce it. But it's worth thinking about precisely why. And I think the standard answer is that you just get more tasks accomplished in a given time period. So this morning I've been working on creative projects. You know, I've uh, published a blog post. I've uh, promoted it on social media. I've published two podcast episodes and I've promoted them on social media. So I've been doing lots of tasks. And so the standard answer is you can just get lots of tasks done quickly and that creates time for getting on to the next task and the task after that. That's the standard answer and it's a perfectly respectable one. I think there is another way of looking at it, which is to say if you find hacks which enable you to use time more efficiently, then the time you save could be devoted to improving the quality of what you're doing rather than the quantity. So there is a sort of quality management aspect to productivity in relation to creative projects. And of course, there's also the question of whether you want to maximise or satisfy. So what that means is you could do things more efficiently and more quickly and save time and get and therefore do more things, or you could do things more efficiently, save time and just have time off, you know, finish a day earlier. I think all of these are perfectly <laughs> strong arguments for productivity. Absolutely. I personally like the idea of finishing early and having a break, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> but, yes. But on a side note, also, it's it's worth considering that it's we, we don't necessarily want to have more tasks done per se, but the idea is that we usually get more tasks than the time allows for anyway. So mm. it's more about trying to squeeze more in. But I think what you noted about the quality is hugely important because oftentimes we kind of tend to put that on the side or disregard it. Not necessarily that we compromise on quality per se, but we take it as a given because we have to do all this anyway. So we cannot afford to have quality for everything. But I think productivity mm. could be framed as how actually to make that balance without making it a compromise. Yes, indeed. And we're, we're talking here about productivity generally, but it's worth noting how this relates particularly to the productivity of creatives. So uh, quite a lot of creatives are self-employed or work in uh, micro-enterprises. And they're, they're not, they don't necessarily have a boss kind of clocking them in and out and making them work nine to five. So then the idea of knocking off early because you've done things becomes particularly important because that provides more family time or, or, or whatever. And a lot of creatives are motivated, at least in part, by intrinsic factors. That's to say, of course, they're motivated by things like making money, but also 
they a lot of creatives are doing the job they're working as photographers or designers or whatever because they actually really enjoy their craft and therefore freeing up time to allow them to be more quality oriented that could really appeal to them absolutely absolutely yeah so okay as a creative content producer yourself professor how do you kind of approach productivity in terms of using time well i've got two approaches Mm -hmm. and i call them the tactical approach and the strategic approach interesting which i think is sort of i think those terms work pretty well so the the tactical approach uh, each of these approaches is really based on a particular resource uh one each uh, that i've discovered at uh, some time in the past so the tactical approach uses a book by ed bliss called getting things done and um i ought to distinguish this from another book there's another book called getting things done by david allen which i think is extremely influential i see it discussed all over the place uh but that's not the book i'm discussing here the book the book the book that gave me my ideas for tactical management of time um from ideas from ed bliss which is is a book that's um I've used for something like three decades and I've used it not just on my own, but in groups with other people in my teams as well. Mm-hmm. And it basically provides lots of hacks, lots of little practical tips to making more productive use of your time. Okay, Professor, that's kind of um, very interesting tactical approach, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure our, our audience would like to know some of uh, these hacks that got you uh, three decades ago. So can you kindly share some examples with us? Yeah, let, let me give you a few. Um, the first one is very simple. It, it revolves around four words. The first two words are if only. So Ed Bliss says, we waste a lot of time looking back at things that we haven't done so well, um, things we should have done but didn't or, or things we did but we shouldn't have done. And we spend time regretting, oh, if only, if only. And Ed Bliss says that, that actually is just a waste of time I and mean, it doesn't actually help you saying if only. So he suggests replacing those two words with a set, another pair of words, which is next time. Instead of saying, oh, if only... I had thought of doing that, you say to yourself, next time I'm going to do this. So that's one very simple hack to use is to modify your behavior about how you learn from uh, from errors, really. Um, a second hack that he, 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 he gives dozens of these things, I should say. Um, a second hack is a way of avoiding procrastination. And I used to be very bad at procrastination at work and I'm not so bad now and I think a large part of the difference is down to this technique Um, he uses a salami technique so he says uh, slice tasks into thin slices and so uh, let's let's say you've been putting off making a phone call to a client and you keep putting it off for perhaps you don't feel very confident about it or something and he says break it down to incredibly small tasks like the first task is to look up the number of the person you have to call. And the second task is to put a precise time of when you're going to call them and so on. And so what he says is each of these little slices is so trivial that you can't really fail to do it. Mm. You know, looking up the phone number, you can't really think of a good reason why you shouldn't get that done, Mm. right? So you get them done. And once you start doing these things, 
then you're underway, aren't you? Mm. you? You get some momentum because you're already progressing this thing that you've been procrastinating. So I like that one very much. Another one is thinking in terms of money, uh, dollars or pounds or whatever. So he says, think of, supposing you work for yourself, he says, work out your annual income, divide it by the number of hours that you work. That tells you how much money you earn in an hour. And then he says, if you're, supposing you're, you've been doing some work for clients and you have a bit of chit chat at the end, you know, a bit of like downtime chat. He says, you might, you might want to spend a quarter of an hour doing it. It's quite pleasant. It's relaxing. But what's the cost of that? How, you know, that's a quarter of an hour of income you've lost. Are you actually, the question is, are you actually happy to forego that income? So actually putting a monetary value to each hour or part of an hour that you use helps you think about, is that a valuable thing to do or not and i'll just i'll just mention one other as i say there are dozens of these things in the book and i by the way i should have said that the book's out of print but in fact you can get uh very um low price copies secondhand on the internet he talks about making to-do lists and i guess everyone who's interested in productivity has a to-do list but he says really you need two to-do lists on one side of the paper you write the scheduled things like today uh, we agreed to meet at one o'clock, so I put that as a scheduled appointment in my in my to-do list. And then on the other side of the paper, you have the non-scheduled things that you're trying to fit in around the scheduled things. And what he says about that is typically when people put in the, non- the non-scheduled stuff onto their to-do list, typically what they do is put in the most pressing so so they're driven purely by one criterion which is the criterion of urgency and he says the problem with that is there are lots of really important things you need to do that aren't yet urgent and you need to kind of start progressing them before (laughs) you run into a crisis because they've become urgent and maybe you haven't got enough time so he 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 urges people when they're constructing their to-do lists to have a category for important but non-urgent things that they put on their on, onto the actual list so those are, that gives a kind of flavor mm. of the hacks wow that's very fascinating i think if i may comment quickly like you covered like you you really picked different and very valuable things so i, I really like the first one on self-talk basically right the idea of what you mm. tell yourself really affect your attitude as well uh, yes yeah, so absolutely always kind of you could frame it optimism, you could frame it positivity, whatever it is, but it's more kind of just pushing yourself forward rather than trapping yourself backward. Um, and I think the second and last one you mentioned as well, the way the procrastination one and the to-do list, particularly on the on the note of long projects or currently non-pressing, soon pressing projects are quite interesting and how slicing these tasks down uh, and maybe scheduling them as a small task will let you at the end mm. to have it as actually schedule, like basically schedule, but over time into small chunks. Yes. And then you get non-scheduled things later on done in a more smooth way, I would say. So fascinating. Yes. Thank you so yes. much for these four. And I'm sure yes. um, right. we're all looking to, to to read the book and learn the other ones as well. But yeah. Before before we move on, Inji, I realise I've actually left out my favourite. So, can I uh, ask your indulgence to say, to, okay, okay? Um, 
he he says that you should record the way you use time and he actually gives a little kind of worked example of how to do that and this is immensely powerful I, uh, there was a time when i was working for an employer full time and i decided i was going to uh, reduce my hours to a part time contract and my colleagues said well of course you know you always end up doing more than part time like if you're going to do 3 days a week you always end up actually doing something like three and a half days a week it never quite works out and i decided i didn't i didn't want to do unpaid work i didn't want you know if i was being paid for three days a week i was going to stick to that so for a few months before i made the transition i actually recorded my time by i had various about seven or eight broad categories of activity and i just recorded how i used each part of the day in relation to those um, activities and so first of all, this worked because I could reflect on on how I was using my time and make some rational decisions about how to divvy up my time when I had less, you know, I was down to three days a week. But but the interesting thing is, even before I sat back and reflected and made some sort of, you know, considered decisions, what I found was the very process of recording my time made me more conscious of time and more careful. So even before I started really reflecting on it, I started thinking, oh, I've just used quarter of an hour on that. I really don't, I don't think I should have spent quarter of an hour on that. So I, the simple process of recording time just made me actually uh, more, my, my allocation of time was more optimal as a result. That's very interesting. May I have uh, one tiny question, please, on that? Yeah. Where do you draw the line between becoming obsessed with recording time and actually making it as yeah. useful self-consciousness pros- process of, of getting better at, at kind of allocating your time? Yeah, I wouldn't want to record my time all the time. I, I think that would become you know kind of really irksome, actually. Uh, and of course, ironically, it takes time to do it. Not very much time, but um, so... Since I've been running my own business, what I've done is I I do this every now and then. So it's like a little checkup. I mean, for instance, I need to spend a certain amount of my time on business development and sales. And I found it very helpful just to kind of record time and think about what I found each time is I am spending the right amount of time on what I deem the right amount of time on sales. But it's very comforting to actually have the evidence. for So I think this is a bit like you know, a health checkup, uh, a well-man or a well-woman health check where you might once a year, you know, have, have a check to see if everything's okay or or a Ministry of Transport and MOT test on your car every year or every two years or whatever it is, you know, is is everything, are the lights working properly and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's something I would do periodically rather than continuously. That's very helpful. Thank you very much, Professor Fraser. Okay, so too much of the tactical approach. What about the strategic yeah. approach? Well, again, this is based primarily on one resource. And the resource is a book published in 2022 by Oliver Berkerman. He's the author. The publisher is, um, I'm just trying to remember what BH stands for, <laughs> The Bodley Head. And um, it, the, the title of the book is 4,000 Weeks, which is the approximate lifespan. Mm-hmm. So that focuses attention somewhat to 4,000 weeks. And really, I think that in Oliver Berkman's approach, I think there are two key aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what are these? 
like don't keep me suspended like this professor <laughs> <laughs> the, the first one is he's obviously very knowledgeable about the what i call the, the literature of hacks so time hacks like the, the type that ed bliss gives you oliver berkman has obviously read and used a lot of these kind of hacks from different different sources different authorities and what berkman says is well there's a problem with these hacks which is although you do actually get each task done more quickly if you inform yourself with the hacks if your goal is to get on top of things so you know people want that feeling of right you know i've dealt with things uh i've cleared my inbox uh i'm i've got nothing that i should should have done that i haven't done i'm i'm on top now um he says the problem with becoming expert at uh, productivity hacks is you will never reach that stage because all that happens is as you get more efficient at um uh dismissing tasks from your to-do list what happens well another lot come along you know it's like a continual flow of traffic right i've dealt with that task oh well here's another task it's compounded by the old saying if if you want something done give it to a busy person so if you are getting good at kind of shifting tasks people around you will notice and they'll give you more to do so basically the first uh, aspect of berkman's argument is that this promise of getting on top of everything by being super efficient in terms of hacks that that that's a false a false promise interesting wow okay that's very um concerning to be honest okay <laughs> and what is the second um aspect okay so the second aspect is uh you could you could think of what i've just said as a sort of the negative bit and then the positive bit the image I have in my mind is a bit like, you know, when you have a photograph, you, you can also have the photographic negative where the dark bits become light and the light bits become dark. Mm. Well, I think Oliver Berkman's approach is a bit like the negative of a photograph. I think he turns things about time management. He turns them round. And in particular, taking up his point, which is, well, if you just get super efficient at these things, just more tasks come along, so there's no end to the conveyor belt. Um, what he says is you should decide what you're not going to do. Mm. And the way to alleviate pressure on yourself is not like a you know, hamster running around a wheel manically getting things done. The way to alleviate the pressure on yourself is just to take things off your to-do list. So decide what you're not going to do. And so what he's what he's saying is it follows from what you've just said, really, which is in the end, you better just accept that it's inevitable. There are going to be some things that you're going to not do. And it's better if you make decisions about that. And so he has some really interesting phrases and subtitles and headings in his book. Like most people would say time management is about avoiding procrastination. And I've given the example of how Ed Bliss deals with that. But Oliver Berkman has a heading which says, procrastinate better. Mm. <laughs> In other words, there are some things you're not going to get around to, and it's better to be kind of, you know, rational about what those things are going going to be. And he also has, he has a, a, a phrase about decide what you're going to fail at, because 
however you deal with things, the total amount of things you could or should be doing is always going to be greater than the time available. So therefore, there are going to be some things that you're going to fail at. And what he says is, decide what you're going to fail at. You make, you make that decision rather than making it um, by default. And it, this actually has a – he's interested in the literature of uh, spirituality and religion because this actually has a sort of spiritual aspect about – you know, what you think you're on earth for. And I think, to me, I'm, I can't remember if he mentions the notion of a Sabbath or not, but I'm really interested in the, the fact that many major religions have the idea of a Sabbath, a time that you reserve from working. Wow, okay. That's like, that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And to be honest, like, as keen as I am to have to read this book, but having not read them yet, it's it seems to me like definitely the other one is like the next one, the one you just mentioned is very strategic. Uh, sorry, very yes, mm. very strategic. Mm. But yeah. since you are kind of an embodiment of these two, and you are very fascinated by them, and they yeah. are kind of shaping yeah. your 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 day to day basically work and and maybe beyond work as well. So are they dichotomous? Do you like choose one sometime and the other, or how do mm. you reconciliate basically? Well, that's a really in intriguing question. I think there are moments in Oliver Berkman's book Four Thousand Weeks where he sort of hints at the idea of a dichotomy I, I don't think he ever actually says there is a dichotomy like if you do one approach you can't be doing the other mm. but he does at times emphasize the tensions between the two approaches and there's a sense that he says look I learned all these productivity hacks I wanted to be super good at them uh you know I wanted to be the expert and and, and be uh, you know unparalleled in my efficiency of tasks and then he realized that, you know, you never actually managed to do everything anyway. And so he, at times he sounds a bit dismissive of these hacks as if, well, that approach didn't work. You know, we need something different because that doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. And so at times it, it feels a little bit as if he's presenting the two approaches as if there's a dichotomy between them. But I think a better way of thinking of it would be like this. If I um, said to you, you know, you sat down to dinner at my house and in front of you is a plate and there's a knife on one side and a fork on the other. If I said to you, so, so Inji, which one are you going to use, the knife or the fork? I mean, you'd think that was a bit odd, wouldn't you? Mm. <laughs> it, it depends what you're eating. Sometimes the knife is useful, sometimes the fork is useful. And incidentally, a lot of the time, it's really good to use both of them and in combination with each other. And I think these two approaches, the tactical and the strategic approach, are actually a bit like the knife and the fork. In particular, the way I think of it is this. If you do the strategic approach, the Oliver Berkman 4,000 weeks approach, and you, are, you radically decide mm. what you're not going to do and what you're not going to worry about and clear that out of the way, then with the tasks that remain as the ones you are going to do, then you can apply the kind of what I'm calling the productivity hacks, the sort of Ed Bliss tactical approach. So I think the two approaches go really nicely together if you use them in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I may, since you kind of uh, mentioned the idea of spirituality as well um, a bit ago, I think f from my humble perspective as well, I think the strategic approach it seems to me that it kind of helps us deal with 
uh, avoid trauma and deal with trauma when it comes. So and when we think of uh, like the stages, the five stages uh, that are for trauma, one of them, you start with denial and then you actually kind of have to move to acceptance. Mm. So it's more as if he, on one side, he's trying to make us kind of go beyond that denial that I'm going to do everything and I'm going to perfect everything. So go beyond the, um, the self-projection of perfection that, is not going to happen for everything. It might happen for something and not for others. Um, and on the other hand, if we fall into that trap or if we got too immense into the tactics that you actually got over everything and we kind of perfected everything, but then we fell, then it's kind of this basically relief that, in, by the way, you didn't do anything wrong. It just... Mm. You, you you should have for next time let's take one of the hacks for next time you need to maybe know which ones that if you fail at it you are you are okay it's fine because basically you took too much on yourself anyway from the start so i think it's kind of it adds a more of as as you said like spiritual basically or more of comforting um it gives confidence at the beginning but as well it gives some kind of comfort when things do not go well. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, well, and I think in particular, I'm interested you introduce the idea of denial, and I think that's, you know, obviously closely related with the idea of guilt. And one of the most useful hacks I learned was the, uh, the idea of identifying your valeities. So a valeity is something you, you would like to do, but you don't really want to do it enough to give up the effort that you need to make in order to get it done. And these things stick around in our brains for decades, like, oh, I must get around to doing this. You know, that, those, those things, those things that you're always attending, intending to do, but you never quite do them. Those are the laities. And so what I learned from Ed Bliss is actually spot the laity. Like the next time you catch yourself saying, oh, I must get around to doing it, you just think, it's the fact that I'm not doing it or haven't done it so far. Is that actually a sign? And I'm never going to do it because to do it would require effort and time on my part. And actually, it's not really worth it. And I just found I found that so invigorating, really, this idea of you know, I think I've become quite good at spotting my valeities. And it really takes the pressure and the guilt off you. No, that's fascinating. These two approaches and how you kindly helped us kind of put them together is just fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor, for such uh, an enriching um, episode. And I'm sure that people who are creative as well as people who are like have more uh, a, a typical or uh, a structured job will will appreciate and will uh, will benefit from it uh, highly. Thank you so much, Professor. Well, thank you very much, Angie. It's been a real pleasure. This was Inji Musa with Anthony Haynes. Greylet Cafe is edited by Dr. Bart Holmark and produced by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus specializes in grey literature forms, such as proposals, publications, papers, and reports. Frontinus helps creators of grey literature to achieve high-quality professional outputs and to be more productive. To discuss your grey literature needs and to see how Frontinus can help, you can contact Frontinus via their website, frontinus.org.uk. There is a link in the show notes. The music is from Handel's Water Music, courtesy of the United States Marine Band and Marine Chamber Orchestra.